I am so excited to invite you to one of the biggest online autism events for 2019, the Autism Summit. You'll find it at autismsummit.com.au. Many people still think that routine is where you want to go. It's not. You stay with the same thing and do it over and over again. You do not progress. Talk to adults with autism and I say, okay, guys, what are your greatest challenges? Is it the sensory? Is it the social? Is it getting a job or a relationship? And they nearly always say, no, it's none of those, Tony. It's managing my anxiety. The behaviour is always, always a byproduct of what is going on in the brain. So if the child is dysregulated, it tells us something about their brain. It doesn't tell us that we need to help them manage their behaviours. The differences between autistic and non-autistic communication are significant. And I always say there's a different language. I say there's a, a cultural difference more than anything else. So it's not that we're doing anything wrong, but we do do things differently. And to understand that is really important. Their social skills don't have to be neatly wrapped up by 18. That's, that's not real. Sometimes this area is about expectations. We're not trying to create social butterflies. We're trying to create people who have some confidence. I now insist that it be done the other way around. You interview the principal. What will you do in this scenario? What's the support look like? Because the funding exists, they do access it, and it needs to be funneled or channeled towards your child. But if we've got stuff happening in our gut and it's affecting our brain through those toxins, we can't work on our language and we can't work on our social skills. Everyone needs to either avoid processed food or learn how to read the new deliberately confusing food labels that are changing all the time. Firstly, tolerate the food and then be able to interact with it, which might mean poking it with a fork or touching it with another food. Welcome to the Online Autism Summit. I am so glad you're here. Whether you're new to the world of autism or if you've been here for a little while now, we have so much for you to explore. You need to get out your calendars and mark it in there straight away because it will be live streaming and free to access from the first to the 5th of April. And if you don't know already, this will be during Autism Awareness Week. Now I have gathered together 20 leading world experts, extraordinary parents, as well as people on the spectrum. And we cover a whole range of topics that are relevant to every child with autism, including behaviors, anxiety, sensory processing, diet and lifestyle. We look at school and homeschooling, employment and different kinds of therapy and really just so much more. It is this beautiful space where people are coming together with different perspectives and sharing their knowledge and their stories and you will leave feeling absolutely empowered and inspired. Now you do have the option of being able to purchase lifetime access to these 20 interviews at really cheap early bird prices. So that is if you purchase before April. When you purchase the summit, you're able to pause and take notes, you can rewind and you can watch the interviews in your own time. You also get access to special NDIS interviews that you can't watch during the free um, during the free summit period. Now, if you are listening to this podcast sometime in the future, don't stress, 
the Autism Summit will continue to live on and be available at autismsummit.com.au. I cannot wait to see you there. Please check it out. Head over, have a look at the welcome video that we've created. It is amazing and it just really sums up what we are trying to do and that is really bring this autism community together. So autismsummit.com.au. Welcome to Homebase Hope, all about autism, the show that invites you to think differently, inspires you to take a whole child approach, and most of all, instills hope when it comes to your child and autism. I'm your host, Rhiannon Crisp from homebasehope.com.au. Let's get into it. Hey guys, and welcome to another fortnight of Homebase Hope. Now, I want you to buckle in today and get excited because we are talking to one of the most charismatic and passionate autistic advocates I know. Today, we are going to be looking through the lens of 32-year-old Sarah Harvey, who you probably know by the name of Agony Orty. Sarah is autistic and was diagnosed at the age of 26 after her son's diagnosis. Sarah openly and courageously lets people into her life through her Facebook Lives and her YouTube channel, Agony Orty. She shares what's in her heart and on her mind and is unguarded when it comes to advocating for the neurodiverse. Sarah is shedding light on autistic behaviours and the different experiences being autistic entails. Welcome, Sarah. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Uh, It is an absolute pleasure and I have been looking forward to this so much. So thank you for um, being patient while we overcome our technology issues. (laughs) Yes, definitely. I think it's more my issues than yours, to be honest. Yeah, no, that is okay. Um, Now, at the start of this show, we always hit the rewind button. So I would love it if you could talk a little bit about what life was growing up for you. Yeah. Um, so I was clearly an autistic child growing up in the eighties and nineties, but I didn't, I wasn't recognized for being autistic. I was recognized for being attention seeking and disruptive and loud and too much and all the other negative labels that don't really help anyone. Um, but I had serious food aversions from the ages of three. I wouldn't eat and mix my food. Um, pervasive anxiety every day from the age of seven, going into school and um, chewing my skin around my fingers, making them red raw like they are now today. And I was the kid that you would find on their own in the playground, happily, well, not quite happily, but often happily, drawing picture after picture in their own world and trying to sell those pictures to the kids to make some money. And um, it was it was only in my... 10th year that I realized that I do want more friends. I don't understand why am I not being invited to birthday parties? Why do I have to flip from group to group and change my personality each time to fit in? And it's quite common with autistic girls that we mask an echo. Um, and um, a lot of verbal autistics can mask an echo and that's how we get missed. And um, it meant that I struggled emotionally I struggled I didn't really learn how to emotionally regulate those feelings and 
because I didn't know that I was autistic, I didn't understand my behavior. I didn't understand why I was having meltdowns or why I was getting overloaded from the shops or from touch or why I couldn't hug mum and dad. You know, um, I didn't understand it. So it was, um, it was tough, but also it got better in high school because in high school I developed the attitude of, well, if they don't like me for me, tough, because that's what they're going to get me. And I stopped caring when I was 14. I think that's got something to do with a personal event in my life stopping, but I just kind of shed a lot of the, well, screw you. So my opposition, that's the oppositional coming in. And I developed this very clown-like character and persona which loved to entertain people and help people. I love making people smile, making them laugh. Um, and through that, I developed quite a nice friendship group in high school. But then entering adulthood, it just became very, very difficult. But yeah, childhood wasn't without its difficulties, but I got to be authentically autistic at times and be embraced for that. And I think that's why I'm so confident today in my identity. And yeah, that's quite key. Mm. And so did you feel different when you were growing up? Did you recognise those differences then? Oh God, yeah, definitely. Well, people kept telling me. I, I knew I was different. Everyone told me I was. You are like no other girl I've ever met. Do you know that most girls aren't like you? Do you know that most people aren't like you? You're like watching seven different TV channels at once. That kind of thing. So, yeah, I, I knew I was different because people kept calling me it. And those are kind of like the complimentary sides. The other ones are just quite nasty. So you're a weirdo, you're a freak, um, you're a manipulative, attention-seeking brat, that kind of thing. Um, just because you are having genuine fun, it can make other people sometimes angry. And um, I think as autistic people, we don't realise the things that we are intensely passionate about, other people just don't care about. And that's, you know, makes socialising a bit difficult sometimes <laughs> to navigate. Mm, absolutely. Um, I want to talk a bit about the diagnosis because you got diagnosed later on in life um, mm. and you found out you were on the spectrum after your son was diagnosed. Can you, yeah. tell, us, can you tell us a little bit about this? Yeah. Well, Frank is my little lad. He's seven now. And he, we knew Frank was autistic when he was 14 months old. So when he was 14 months old, I knew he was autistic. The battle then was then trying to get GPs and other professionals to see this too. However, we were very fortunate because they all agreed on, on basically first, second sight. Yeah, he, he's, uh, everyone can have social emotional communication difficulties, but not everyone will be autistic. And he's autistic. His sensory sensitivities are through the roof. He's smacking himself. He's covering his ears. He's covering his eyes. He's 14 months old. And this world is terrifying this kid. Why? I was like, oh my God, now I understand. But then when the occupational therapist came out and when the salt sleep lungs came out, they were like, your son's autistic, but they're kind of making eyes at me as well. And when they were giving some advice to my son, they're like, we actually think this will be really, really beneficial for you as well. And um, sorry, because they knew that I didn't know. But I was being seen by a psychoanalysis at the time, and I'd only agreed to see to speak to a talking therapist at the age of 27 because I have been avoiding it 
I've been avoiding it because I, I thought they wanted to correct me. I thought they wanted to talk me out of things. I didn't really understand what it was and I didn't feel comfortable with opening up to a stranger. So I avoided it until I realized I needed to go through the process of opening up. And it was then over that 10 week psychoanalysis, psychotherapy course that she was like, have you heard of autism? I was like, well, funnily enough, my son has been diagnosed at the age of 23 months. It took only 10 months, nine months for my son to be diagnosed. And she referred me to a psychiatrist and an occupational therapist um, who looked at all the notes that she collected over 10 weeks, you know, all the history from my childhood, all my teenage, all the difficulties. They looked at all the other A&E admittances and all the other notes to do with mental health over the last 10 years that they could gather from the GP. Um, and they told me that they wouldn't make a decision there and then. They would go away and make an assessment after, you know, to see if I'm autistic. Well, after two hours, they came in. They're like, Sarah, you're autistic. There's no point in waiting. We're really sorry. It's unethical, if actually, if I don't tell you right now. You're autistic, and we're so sorry that we confused your past trauma with who you are. And that was the most validating thing for me ever, ever, because I was sexually abused as a child for, for since the ages of four until the ages of 14. And I thought that I was the way I was because of a fundamental result of that abuse. Now, that's a dangerous notion because if I think I can't go into a shop because of my uncle, I feel like he's dominated me and taken over me. It liberated me. I can't go into the shop, actually, because the lights are too bright and that queue's too long and that person over there was rude and it makes me avoidant. How liberating and refreshing is that? And it means I can do something with it instead of going, I'm traumatized, I'm, I'm beyond hope. That's the narrative that I was taught before I knew I was autistic. People would say, you are this way because of what you've been through. No, I'm this way despite what I've been through. I'm autistic and I was always going to be like this. Unfortunately for me, I've also got PTSD lumped in there, as many autistics will. So, you know, don't convolute the diagnosis. It's important to look at the different issues and be able to see what the autistic person's needs are and not lump everything down to trauma or to autism because it's beneficial to, to identify what the root causes, I think. And it enables me to do things. So yeah, the, the diagnosis helped me. And it began with my son. When they saw that Frank was autistic, they saw that I was. And of course they would, because I was born in 86. I was never going to be diagnosed. Unless I presented with the difficulties my son has, which was being nonverbal in communication, um, self-harming from a very young age, and sensory sensitive from a very young age. I'd never be identified because the criteria has only been focused on a very narrow, male, and classic types of autism instead of the broader representation of autistic people that do exist, which is the ones who mask and camouflage and they pretend they're not autistic, do you? Yes, yes. They're everywhere. And it's about time they're recognised because they're struggling. Yeah, absolutely. And... I think there are so many parents now who, just like you, are getting their child diagnosed 
and there is this little light bulb moment going off for them or the therapists are hinting or saying something um, to them um, because there are so many people, you know, that haven't been diagnosed um, 20 or 30 years ago that were missed and, and now it's starting to, you know, we're starting to see more diagnoses around this in the adult later stages in life. Yeah, that's it. And you'll see a lot of parents, I've seen it so much. Like, it used to surprise me. I said, why, why? But I know why now. It's because the diagnostic criteria has only existed since 1943. Lorna Wing only broadened it out to women and girls in the 80s. That's where I come into it. So, of course, it's, it's going to be this. But, sorry, just one second. I'm just going to close my door. One second, sorry. You're right. Um, but, um... That recognition is so important because I, I, I have a lot of people who watch Agony Orty who are, are realising I'm maybe autistic too or I'm autistic like my kid and it's it's everywhere. Not all parents will be autistic. You'll have some parents where it's one autistic and, and one neurodivergent or non-autistic. And you'll have, I don't know if it's possible to have totally non-autistic parents though. I really don't. I'm so the opinion that it's... um of who we are in terms of our genes. And it's, if you look down your whole family, it will make sense. You remember your granddad, like, from being like, oh, was he autistic? You know those outbursts he used to have? Oh. Yeah, it's just, it's beautiful. It's just a bit sad when you realize you're not really had that awareness around it and how much it could have helped our other generations too. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. So what changed when you got your diagnosis in terms of, you know, did people interact with you differently? Did anything inside of you change? What, what started to change? What were your thought processes around it once you got that diagnosis? Mm. My, um, my friends, I told my friends, I was like, I'm autistic. Can you believe that? And they were like, well, yeah, actually, it makes a lot of sense. I, actually, yes, yeah, so that answers a lot. And I'm like, do you believe it? Can you believe it? Do you believe it? They believed it before me because they're like, oh God, that's Sarah. Yeah, that makes sense. That's why she was bouncing off the walls and jumping on people and like getting apples and throwing it and being really, really silly. And because my attention and energy was all over the show and I was trying to regulate it. So my friends have been very accepting and they've not changed really towards me at all. They're just like, makes sense because some of my closest friends are all themselves, you see. So, um, but not diagnosed because they're, they're a bit older than me. Um, so I, I, I have a very neurodivergent friendship group. It's only small, but I do have it. Um, so they've been very embracing. My parents for a while treated me differently. Um, my mum did. She was really funny until I had to tell her that it just was not okay. She was just like, whenever I get upset out in public or maybe a bit, you know, for God's sake, this isn't right, she'd go, oh, I'm so sorry, it's just her autism. And I'd say, no, it's not my autism. It's the fact that that customer service person is absolutely rude and I'm allowed and validated to be angry right now. The only thing that's autistic maybe is the fact that I can't control my facial expression. I can't bullshit the way that you may. Yeah. So that's, it's like kind of like, oh, why are you saying this? And for a while I kind of thought it weaponized against me. You know, she's this way because of this. She can't control it because of this. It's like, you, do you know what autism is, mum? And that's when I realised you don't have a clue. So I can't be angry at you when you don't even know what it is. I better get teaching. And that's what I've been doing. Like, 
I would say my parents now, they understand me more now. Like the first two years of my diagnosis, they just didn't really get it. But now since opening up more about the sensory and the emotions and, and fire agility, they are much more respectful of my needs and my passions and the way I think and the way I feel. Um, but it's taken a while. It can take a while with any family. And that's what the autistic people have to remember. If they do come out to their family members, you've got to remember who's educating on what autism is. Absolutely. And it's the medical professionals, but it's not the autistics themselves. And unless we offer that perspective ourselves, they're not going to get it. They are going to think it's the autism because they're talking from the medical narrative. And it is our job to humanize ourselves again instead of place, placing all the blame on the, on the condition, I say in inverted commas, yeah? There are many conditions that come along with autism, but to blame everything on being autistic, it's just, it's irresponsible, I think. And it doesn't teach the autistic to gain responsibility either. Because you get to go, it's just my condition. No, it's not. It's, that, it's not. If you're struggling, it's because of your anxiety. If you're struggling because you're depressed or you're low self-esteem, if you're struggling to understand that sentence, it's because of the way that it's been spoken, because of the way you cognitively receive information. But to blame autism consistently as a deficit is damaging. Because what happens is autistics get confused and then we go, I'm bad because I'm autistic. I would love to get... Yeah, I would love to get your definition on autism then. So if someone stopped you down the street and asked you, what is autism? What would you say? Okay, so autism, I would say, I literally, it's a difference of the brain. So cognitively, my brain senses, which is everything, by the way, senses the world differently, which means the senses, the eyes, the ears, the nose, the taste, the touch, the vestibular system, the way that I sort out information. It is experienced differently, which means I will come to different conclusions. I will communicate differently. I will notice and process differently. I will behave differently because of the way I function. That is what it is to be autistic. And it is mainly our sensory that impacts our ability to communicate, to cognitively and executively function because we've got way too much information. It's not because we're slow. It's because we're processing so much. I don't know what to prioritize so I can get lost and avoidant, yeah, in those behaviors, those self-protective behaviors. So that's what autism is. But what autism is currently being seen as is a social, emotional, and communication disorder and deficit. And I argue that the communication and the social difficulties come out because fundamentally we're different to begin with. So of course we're going to socialize and communicate differently. It's not a social communication disorder. It's, it's those functions are disordered because we process differently and we actually don't put a lot of onus onto it the way that neurotypical society does maybe. So it's all about relativity and perspective and shifting your perspective and offering the autistics to have a look. There were people getting very angry, I know, going, how can you say it's not a condition? What about those who can't self-feed or go to the toilet? Or what about those who smack themselves repeatedly in the face? My argument, again, is that if you have somebody with a learning difficulty, it's the learning difficulty that is impacting their ability to cognitively reason, 
to um, take information and, and to learn for cause and effect, yeah? But to blame it just on autism. It's stupid, considering that there are millions and millions of diverse autistics and we're very different from one another. It's clever to look at the individual person and look at their needs. So I would look at an autistic and go, okay, they're autistic, which is cognitively different, that's the baseline. But do they have a learning difficulty? Do they have a co-concurrent condition, such as epilepsy or Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, that will impact their behavior? Do they have communication? difficulties are they do they have the coordination difficulty between the brain because it's to do with the brain autism the brain and the mouth the motorization yeah that is clever not severe not high functioning because ultimately it doesn't tell you anything about that person and my son has had the label severe stamped on him what does that tell you about my son what presumptions and assumptions of his competence do people come up with? Do we give these kids a chance? And, and I'm always looking for support where it's needed. I support my son more than the average child, three times, four times more than the average child. But it's a privilege to do so because when I get to see him excel and do the things that he loves and express himself non-verbally, because that's how he often has to, it means everything. So I refuse to see him as a deficit and I, I like to look at him as a diverse human because I'm a diverse human and to be autistic is to be part of the diversity of humanity. I think it's bloody beautiful. Mm, absolutely. I love so much of what you said then. I think it is so important to look at the whole child. You know, it doesn't matter who we're looking at. Everyone is different and everyone has their differences and as a therapist myself, I will always look at like beyond the label um, because like you said, you know, whether they're stamped with severe or whatever they have been given, we need to look beyond that and we need to look at what's going on for them. What are their challenges? Because autism is a spectrum and, you know, it's not a linear spectrum. It's multidimensional. I like to see it as a sphere. Yeah, absolutely. I like to see it as a nice 3D sphere that you have to cut in and dissect and slice open and look at it from a 3d round perspective not you know not that flat linear one point of view and then that way you get the, the life because this is the way it, it, it's absurd to me that people do this to autistics because if i did this to normal people let's call them muggles non-autistics if i was to say to normal people you're normal that's it you're just normal i can tell by you, you're normal but that normal person says, well, hang on, I have anxiety, I have debt problems, I have back pain, I have a chronic condition, and I'd rather you see me as an individual and assess my needs than just saying, you're normal and you're fine. That's what's happening to the autistics, they're going, you're severe, you're high functioning, you're fine. It, it doesn't make it, we would never do this to the neurotypicals, so why on earth are they doing it to, to our community? I don't understand, it's, it's not common sense for me. Mm. It, it isn't, people think I'm being cruel. It doesn't make sense. I do. It's just not black and white. Why are you doing it for this community, but not this one? Oh, because you medicalise our community completely, and that's why it's weird to see people who are autistic being proud. I've had people going, "How dare you be proud? How can you be proud to be autistic? It's a condition. It needs to be eradicated." How does that yeah. make you feel? Um. 
I feel sad for the person because they really do see the autism as a disease or a threat and they really have bought that the behaviour is because the kid's just being naughty and disobedient. And if they looked at it from my point of view, they'd realise that there's such an amazing opportunity to build a real relationship with that autistic person if they just shifted the goddamn perspective for once. Just shift your perspective. It's just a shift. It's not me telling you to adopt a whole new Bible. I'm asking you to shift it into our point of view from our eyes. And they say that autistics can't put ourselves in, our in other people's shoes. I want other people to put themselves in the autistic people's shoes. That's going to be difficult because we do experience things a little bit sensory different. And autistic from autistic will have different sensory profiles. Some will be sensitive to touch. Some won't. Some will be sensitive to light. Some won't. Some will be chefs who will eat everything and some won't eat anything like me because we're food diverse because our sensory profiles all differ. That's why autistic people present so differently. And mm. it's just, uh, I think it's refreshing if people get to know that. I think it's a really good working point instead of they're the problem, they need to be fixed. I do get very upset because I look at my son and, and I know that people think he's broken and people go, oh, bless him, poor thing. And just like, excuse me, he's designing roller coasters. We Like literally in 3D perspective and chopping it up and doing the logo, doing creative boards, self-taught. So if you want to pity him, pity the fact that he has no friends. Pity the fact that he's lonely. Pity the fact that he's bullied. Pity those things. Don't you pity my son for flapping and humming. Because that's what they do. That upsets me. I can take shit. I can take... Oh, sorry, I swore. I'm so sorry. I can take people's aid to me. You're diseased. You need to be hospitalised. Because I think it's ableist. And it's what marginalised communities have to take. And it empowers me to prove these people wrong. But when people do it to my son, that's what keeps me going even more. That's what picks me up in the days I want to stop. So it keeps me going is the answer to, to let them know how wrong they are. Let them know the way that they thought homosexuality was a disease of the brain that needed to be cured. Let them know they got it wrong and let them know they owe us a goddamn apology. Our community, they do. Because we will always have people who need medical care. In the neurotypical population, there are people with learning disabilities, there are people with co-concurrent conditions that need that support. It is no different from my community. The difference is that my most vulnerable in my community have been locked away and had the most terrible therapies done on them in the name of conversion and the name of cures. That's the difference. Hmm. There are a lot of parents out there who feel very intimidated by the diagnosis because of the yeah. stigma around it and they will resist getting a label. Um, what do you say to parents who feel this way and who don't know a lot about autism, um, who may be listening to the podcast and just don't know whether they should go and seek that diagnosis or just stay in the security of where they are right now? Yeah, you've got to be aware, whenever you seek diagnosis, there's always the possibility that you will be told that you're not autistic. And it's because some people are not autistic when they seek diagnosis, yeah? They, can, they may get confused, oh sorry, confused with a, can you still see me, yeah? Um, they may get confused with a different condition, or, um, you know, they may identify with blah, blah, blah. But they're trying to roll it back. So they're trying to say you're not autistic because you can talk. 
you're not autistic because you can make eye contact. Yeah, that, these are outdated practices in psychiatry. They belong in the 50s, 60s. I don't know what the hell they're doing in 2019. It's quite frankly embarrassing that I know the criteria more than these people who are psychiatrists. And they, they've been to medical school. That, 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 that's quite embarrassing, I think. So I think um, people need to be aware that I wasn't diagnosed when I was 27. I was told it was in my head. I was told there was nothing wrong. I was told there was nothing about me other than you're traumatized. But if you identify with it from that sensory perspective, go at it and just be aware the diagnosis and the way that people see us is pretty toxic at the moment. We are often seen as a threat, but I'm asking people to embrace being autistic. That means looking at the criteria and still saying, yeah, I'm autistic, but no, I'm not a deficit to this society. Yeah? It's only when people know who they are that they can work from the correct framework. Because if you're playing in a different ballpark to someone and you're still trying to kick their ball and join in, when really you should be in mine, yeah, you're going to struggle and you're going to always feel like you're failing because you've been working from a different framework because guess what? You have a different brain, a process of brain, um, stimuli differently and sorts it out differently. Embrace it. If you are diagnosed, embrace it. But I totally understand how painful it can be because I know the stigma and the ignorance that will come with it. So be prepared. Be prepared for people not having a clue. Be prepared for saying you don't look autistic, they're not autistic. And just say, what is autism to you? And you'll see. How do you prepare a child for that, for parents who are listening Um, in? You know, and is there a right time to tell your child if they do get a diagnosis? I would tell your kid as soon as possible, ASAP. My child knows he's autistic. Um, he won't remember ever being told because he just grew up with it. He was diagnosed when he was 23 months. And the word autism and autistic has always been a positive affirmation in this house. I'll show you something he drew, actually, one second. He drew this last year. And this warmed my heart. He knows I'm autistic. He says, mummy, autistic. He's confused. He thinks at the moment that autistic is um, like pain and upset and overload and struggle because that's what he sees a lot. But I'm trying to teach him that autistic is fun and creative and skinny and, you know, look at the way you're drawing, Frank. I'm like, can you see pictures in your head right now, Frank? He's like, yeah. And I'm like, that's because you're autistic and you're using your visual cortex. He's like, yeah. See, I lost him at that point. <laughs> he drew this. It's autistic pride, it says. And he drew it nonstop for a whole month during the autistic prides that we were doing in the UK because I want him to be proud because I have been ashamed. I've been ashamed and I've been trying to unlearn that the last two years. And if you're ashamed of yourself every day, you end up hating yourself. You don't have any self-esteem. You don't have any worth. And I will be damned if my son feels like that because he's different. And my son is very very different very far more obviously so than me i've learned to mask so he's much more vulnerable to that self-esteem and to that self-hate and that is why i'm instilling pride and love and letting him know yes it is tough it is tough to be autistic because we feel so much and we see so much but frank it's who we are and it's what makes you you we've got to learn to help each other frank 
and that's how I kind of model it. So with telling your kid you're autistic, I would look for autistic bloggers and YouTubers. I'm going to pitch me because I do autistic friendly um, and it's at the moment kids shows on YouTube that talks about being autistic and having anxiety. And I want them to see that I'm autistic and go, well, she's autistic. I don't think she's bad. Then why would I think I'm bad? And we don't have positive role models. We don't have autistic role models. Visibility is very scarce. So let your kid know you're autistic and you're living in a time where people don't really know what it is, but that's changing. You know, I'd be as honest as you can with your autistic kids because guess what? Your kid's autistic. They'll thrive on honesty and they'll, they'll just see past, they'll just see through your life and let them know that autistic is nothing to be ashamed of. It means that you sense the world differently. You feel the world differently. So you communicate and behave differently. But the people around you don't understand that. But one day they will. Always instill hope whilst telling the truth. Truth is important for our kids. I, I really do think so. The Aughty ones really do appreciate it. Some of them are seven looking at astrophysics, so trust me. They really, they really want to know how the world functions. They don't mind you telling them the truth, that it can be hard some days and that it's okay to cry. But as long as we carry on because we love each other, we help each other. That goes a long way, I think. It would have for me if I was little. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we can't go shaming people. You know, I think shame is one of the worst emotions a person can feel. Um, and it is. It's about just embracing everyone and making sure people are respected for who they are and not having to mask like you were talking about earlier. Masking, mm -hmm. um, you know, whether it's stimming behaviours or trying to um, engage in eye contact if something, if that's something that is, you know, hurtful to you. Um, yeah. Can we talk about masking? Because I think as a society we do place so much importance on fitting in that yeah. the true essence of a child is lost and um you know it really dims their light and who they are so can we talk about what masking means dive into that a little bit more and what your thoughts Absolutely. are this. i'm just looking for my phone charger as well because my phone is telling me the battery's low and i do not want the calls to get cut off so just bear with me one second i really could have my husband here today oh um so yeah, with masking, everyone will mask to some extent. Okay, so masking, I'll tell you why masking feels so difficult for autistics in a minute as well. Oh, just one sec, let me get this. Charger. Yes, I have the, um, the equipment to keep the power <laughs> going. Good, good, good. These cables. One day we'll just have power cells. How cool is that going to be? We will. We'll have power cells one day. And who will and invent it? And you're like a scientist working on it already. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's totally yours out there, by the way. Who do you think it is looking at water droplets and atoms and doing things again and again and again and again and again to get quantum data? It's us. We're that. We are fully in that scientific community. And then we're in the arts community as well. You'll find us some brilliant lawyers too. Honestly, people don't understand where we can be when supported. If supported, you could be an artist, you could be a dancer. Yeah? Anyway, uh, so masking. Everyone will mask to some extent. I'll tell you what a mask is. So a mask is this. A mask is 
say if then someone walked up to you and you're they're wearing like a really awful outfit and they say oh is my outfit nice and you go yeah it's lovely that's a math because you're faking the smile you're faking the tone of voice lying for, for a start as well and it is for me it's a lie now most people go it's a white lie i'm autistic it's a lie a lie's a lie and that's just how i see it so masking is difficult because often i feel like i'm lying to myself um and it means as an autistic person i mask a lot because i have to hide my need to stim so i stim a lot i i, I twiddle with things so if it's my hair or a hat or even when I'm more anxious, I'll just full on rock and full on flat and be like this. But I've had to learn to hide it a lot. And in social groups, you have to be very still. And you have to mimic their, their language. And it's, it's called echoing. You're, you're basically trying to act like the predominant population who are non-autistic. And that means not stimming, not becoming overloaded by the lights. You know, you're trying to mask things like that. And it, it's trying to mask that you were fully complementers when actually you're going into shutdown or overload and or maybe disassociation and it's difficult for you to to function but we'll still try and mask through it instead of just saying i need five minutes and that's when the explosive behavior can come that's when the meltdowns can come that's when i can't take this anymore can come and the mask slips because you're not being your authentic self you're not regulating or meeting the need, your needs, because you're too busy masking and performing for the needs of other people's comfort, social comfort it usually is. Um, and it doesn't look like a big deal. I think a lot of non-autistic people are like, well, what is the big deal It's masking? Everyone does it. We are having to mask not only tone of voice and facial expression, we're having to suppress the autism. We're having to camouflage it. We're having to pretend that we're normal. Now, if you're not normal, that is suffocating. It's suffocating. Um, so I did stop masking a long time ago. I've not really been able to mask since I was 14. Um, I will, when I'm like in person, I'll be very good at looking people, you know, towards the bridge of the, in between the eyes and around the eyes. And I'll be, you know, I'll squeeze my hands together really hard to kind of just keep that composure instead of doing this. Because that's what I want to do all the way through it. But instead I do this. It's more socially acceptable, yeah. But when I'm with my autistic, I don't. When I'm with my fellow autistics, I'm like this talking to when I get excited. I don't need to hide it. It's so great. And when we're with other autistic people, we're all just like this with each other. And if you're excited and you're moving, you're moving. And we read, actually. We understand this thing. It's communication. It's bloody brilliant. It's like behavior in, in, our, in our way. And it's body language. If someone's doing this, I can feel their energy. So masking. Masking is bad because it denies autistic people to even have a culture. It denies us to have a community. Because if we're all masking and not being our authentic selves, we can't self-reflect. We can't move forward. You know, it, it, it's a shame. And there's so many autistics I meet who are unmasking and they're in their 50s. It means they're starting to embrace stimming in their 50s. And I'm just like, yes, go get it. Go get it. Because if this helps you, which it will, then isn't it a shame that you've had to suppress it for all that time? And by the way, when you suppress, it comes out in other negative maladaptive ways. It comes out in maladaptive behavior, it's such as, um, for me, it was, came out as addiction, 
med- um, alcoholism um, and self-harm, avoidance. And they, they put all of this as part of the autism. No, no, this has occurred to us. Autistic people have been treated quite abhorrently by society. And that isn't talked about enough when people are looking at our nervous disposition. Why are they so nervous? Why are they so suicidal? Why are they so, you know, engaged with this behavior, this behavior? What, I want to know why the focus is only on the person and not on the society and what they're doing to us and what they've done to us. And that's why Steve Silverman's Neurotribes is an exceptional book. I would recommend anyone who's discovering what autism is to go and get Steve Silverman's Neurotribes because basically what it is, it's a big, thick book of autistic history. We've never really had it before in one place. It's telling you where the word autism comes from, where the, the, the research began in the 1800s, how the diagnostic criteria began in World War II, 1943, and where we are today, and what it's done to us as people, and where we have been all this time. It's a really, really useful book, I would say. Mm. I want to jump back, just quickly, back to the stimming and masking. If the stim is a really... Um, a behaviour that's interfering with a child's daily life. What do you recommend then? How should parents view this and what should they do to help them get through the day? Encourage them to keep doing it or or to stop it? What's your viewpoint on this? So I would say when anyone stims, it's for a function. So look at what the function is. We need to know why are they stimming? Why are they doing that? Why are they shoving loads of cotton wool in the mouth? Oh, no, 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 sorry, one sec. Sensory, sensory memory, just one sec. I should never have said that. Paper. I hate cotton wool and I have sense memory, so now I can feel it. Oh, why would anyone put it in the mouth? Ooh, I've got red as well, like literally. Oh, I'm sweating. Now, this is what I mean. I'm wired differently. So if I, I'm started sweating. So if I say cotton wool, and people go, you're too much, you're faking this. I, I'm not, I'm, I'm so wired differently that even saying cotton wool in the mouth brings up the tactile memory of that time that I did it and now I can experience it and now I'm getting the aversion it's going all down my arms that's what I mean by we're cognitively different people just think that I don't know what they think but that's what it, it, it is but um what was your question again, my love I'm so sorry no that's all right we're gonna bit sidetracked no <laughs> as long as you're okay um it's the cotton wool, the cotton wool. <laughs> I was just wondering, with kids who have stimming behaviours, if they are excessive and they're consuming a lot of the day, and I know kids who will just spin endlessly in circles and going round and round, and they won't yeah. stop until their mum says, hey, let's do this, or, or pulls them away and does something yeah. and engages them in a different way. Cool, cool. Okay, so stimming is usually for a few functions. Let's focus on the ones which are, you know, the harmful, disruptive ones. Because we know that stimming can be fun. We know that stimming can be communication. But we know that stimming can also be, this is the thing, people think it's the stimming that's causing the harm. It's not, they're already in pain. I'm so sorry. If you see an autistic person pacing around back and forth, they are already in pain. It is not the stimming that's causing the pain. It is the emotions. Oh, it could be physical. So see the stimming as a sign. And what you should do is what is the function? Why is Timmy pacing in circles for an hour? Does he even know it's been an hour? 
because when I'm in distress, my executive functioning, my concept of time, and my disassociative states are very, very heavy, which means I need a signaler. I need someone outside of myself to say, you're sensory seeking, but in a distressed way. And, and to redirect. So it's never about stopping the stim. It's about seeing that this person is trying to regulate. Why? And that's the tough part. Why? Because everyone's individualized, remember, so I won't have these answers until I meet you or see you. But getting, I, I think this is so important. Before we try to stop or disrupt the stim, which actually the stim is helping them, I know it may not look like it, but it is. It is. Doing this can actually help me when I feel like ripping off all my face because that's what I feel like doing. So this is nothing. And it's about trying to signal to them, starting to hurt, starting to, to, to you know, it's a bit of maladaptive stimming. And recognize it as essentially seeking behavior. So then offer alternate stims. Offer them, do they want to bounce on the bed? Do they need a weighted blanket or a squeeze? Would they like to watch something visual? Would they like to engage in something tactile, proprioceptive, whilst they're pacing around? Um, would they like something that they could fiddle with? Would they like to, to, to kick something and outside or have a little scream and a yell together because we're, so, we're in so much emotional pain? Yeah? These are all different ways of expressing grief and regulation that we've not been taught. And autistic people, we have never been taught to stim. But we do it anyway because we're bloody brilliant and we're instinctively equipping ourselves with the only coping mechanism we have in that moment to regulate, and that's to move. And you would move too. You would move too if you were feeling anxiety or um, confusion and not knowing what you were doing from state to state. You would move too. So what I would always say is when anyone's in, engaging with those um, kind of disruptive kind of distressing stims, it's not the stim. The autistic other person is already in distress and they're either communicating it to you or they're trying to regulate it. And then it's up to us to what, what else do we offer as an alternate. But because everyone's not been looking at the alternate, we don't have too many. And autistics people are trying to use sensory seeking to navigate our own sensory quotas. We're trying to teach ourselves that now. And, and thankfully, occupational therapists so I love occupational therapists because they've always been aware of the sensory. They've always been aware of how sensory input affects us. But other therapists aren't. When I met my occupational therapist, when I talked about the lights and the sound and she understood, that was so validating to me. Better than any GP. Better than any psychiatrist. Apart from the one I was diagnosed by, he was great. But she understood it. And it's, that's validating because... She understood why I need to move where I do, why some days I won't be able to have hugs because I'm too sensitive. And when other days I'm like, wah, 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 and I'll be sensitive. She understands the sensory quotas for us swing. That's what it's like to be autistic. We're rarely in the middle. We're constantly trying to get in the middle by regulating. And non-autistic people are often in the middle, constantly. They don't have to regulate the senses. I have to regulate my senses and regulate the emotions and try and be normal. So it's all, it's, that's why it's tough mm. to be autistic. Yeah. And I love what you said because parents who are just new to this 
world of autism, um, they might have absolutely no idea about sensory processing and how their child is experiencing the world because it will be so very different to them um, and there has to come this level of understanding for them to really um, appreciate and value and respect that what their child is experiencing is real and it is their reality. Yes, it's difficult now because the parents have had no help themselves, right? And if you've got autistic parents who don't know it and are only kind of realising it, they will feel a little bit triggered, if I'm honest with you, because they will remember the way that they were disciplined. So I'll give you an example. I've been using this, this stim toy, whilst talking to you. Whenever I get overloaded, um, I, I look away because visually looking away helps me speak because they're two different faculties. So I don't need to engage the ears, the eyes and the mouth to deliver a speech. I just need to deliver the mind and the mouth. But society wants me to give you my eyes and ears. Well, I'm saying, no, I can't do it. And if you want me to give you the information, I need to look away. But it's being read by parents as disobedient, disrespectful, that they're not listening. When actually, they're listening more by doing this and double check. Did you hear that? And so we're going to do that, you know, that kind of confirmation. They'll go, okay, yeah. And if the autistic person didn't hear you, they can say, oh, I'm so sorry, my mind cut off then. Ask for it to be repeated. But they're not. They, they are regulating. And, and that needs to be understood because I was often like, you need to look this way, look this way, look this way, look this way, look this way. Bloody hell. Okay. I will look this way. And because I'm looking this way, I now don't understand a word you're saying and I can hear it but it's not going in because I'm too busy performing now I'm too busy worrying about if I'm giving you enough eye contact I'm too busy worrying if I look like I'm being attentive and now I've not learned a goddamn thing so I became thick I became thick for the comfort of others I forfeited my ability to take in the information in the way that I needed for the comfort of others and that's what parents need to realise. They need to ask themselves, am I asking my child to change for my own comfort, for my expectations of what a child should be? Or am I asking them to change because I really want to support and help, yeah? And, and we, don't, we can change together. This is the thing. You need to demonstrate change to your kid. You cannot tell them, you need to change, you need to get better, without first bettering yourself because Children, especially autistics, we learn via echoing. We, we learn via mimicking, by observation. So be the best bloody role model you can be. Be a parent. Show them it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to be weak. It's okay because you're not weak, actually. You're just human. And it, it means everything. But it's difficult because these parents haven't been given that themselves, right? And that's why I see, I see a lot of fight flight. I see the kids fight flight coming up because they're autistic and anxious. And I see the parents fight flight coming up because, well, you have to get on with it because I've had to get on with it and I've had to be brainwashed and I've had to get through it. So why, why, why don't I just, uh, and they're fighting each other. They're fighting each other instead of everything else that harms them. So parents, if you think you may be autistic too, then you know what this is like. And you have the opportunity to really make some changes this time round. We're in a new generation. It's exciting, I think.
It is so exciting. And I think you've touched on so many important points there, but one of them is just advocacy. So being that voice for your child, um, when you were talking then, I was thinking about kids who are going to school, the school age kids who um, are told to give eye contact and who are told to um, do certain things to conform to the social norms when you're in the school setting. And this can bring up a lot of anxiety for kids on the spectrum. Um, so for parents to be their advocate and to teach the teachers what it means for their child, how it um, is impacting them and how they can support support their child at school. I would say at the moment we're, in, we're just in a big crisis. We're not where we need to be. We're a good 20, 10 years away from where we need to be. Um, and that's just a starting point. We're a good 50 from where we need to be with child protections for autistic people as humans. But I want them to know that like with every advocacy, with every alliance, with every understanding, they move us forward, not backwards. And that's how you help your kids. That's how you advocate for them. You advocate for them when you question the teachers saying, no, Cindy's just bratty and attention-seeking and she's just doing it to be disruptive. You advocate by saying, you are ableist. And what you've just said, if you repeat in 10 years from now, will be seen as such. It is anti-autistic to reframe my child's regulated needs as disruptive behaviours. And it's egotistical to assume that a child would design all of this just to annoy you. That's what I would say. That's what I have said to teachers because an artist, well, I didn't mean, well, I didn't, what did you mean? You know, and, and they, this is the thing, these teachers think they have a monopoly. They don't, what's their training? And you be their parent, you be their advocate. You say, what's your training with autism? They'll answer two hours. Because they say, well, well, my training is my life. And another thing you can do is source them to autistic advocates. Now, parents, really listen up. Have the charities been helping you? If not, come to the autistic advocates, the actual autistic adults. That's who your kids are going to grow up to be. We're out there. We're on YouTube because the internet exists now, yeah? Go on YouTube. We are everywhere. Neurodivergent Rebel is an American um, advocate, the autistic advocate. We've got um, Autistic Not Weird. We've got um, John Greeley is a huge autistic advocate in New Zealand. And we have autistic advocates internationally. Go to them, see what they're saying, see what they're talking about, um, see how they've overcome their struggles, see how they sense regulate, and watch it just fill you up with bloody hope and with pride and with a different perspective than this big book that's whacked down in front of you that's deficit, negative, medical, behavior, communication, may never ever get out of nappies. There's a different world. So come to the community because when parents come to the autistic community, they embolden us. They do, and um, they, they strengthen us, and it will help. And another thing is, we're also giving information from the horse's mouth. So the next time a teacher says, no, 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 you show them our content, and you say, this is from autistic people, and they're being invited to speak at conferences, to deliver to social workers, to deliver to NHS workers, to deliver to employers. So tell me again, teacher, why are you making this so hard? Is it because you actually don't know what you're talking about? And it's difficult. As autistic people, I'm always checking my ego. 
I always need to know when I'm right and wrong. I have to admit when I'm wrong and say sorry. But other people won't bloody do it. Why won't other people take responsibility? Why won't other people say I'm wrong? I think maybe it's easy for autistic people to admit they're wrong because we've been told we're wrong all our lives. How about it be your turn to be wrong? Because it is. It is your turn. It is the neurotypical's turn to be wrong about us. Cindy in the classroom when she's stimming or when she's bursting out crying, she may have been bullied that you don't even know about. That she's very sensitive to it. She may be scared by the, the lights or some people flapping in the room or the subject matter. But you always have to look at the why and never, ever land on the, the just autistic and disruptive. Because every time that people land on the, the just disruptive and autistic, there's a name for that. And it's called discrimination. And I, I won't abide by it. And neither should you. So look for it. Look, does this teacher just not know and they could do some education? Or is this teacher being actively discriminative towards my kid because they're autistic? And because this teacher can't cope. And that's where the system has to change. And listen, if you come to the autistic advocate, we will help you because we are going to the government and we are petitioning parliament and we are saying we need training. We're doing that. So it's full circle. It's going to be a community. Come and help us, honestly. Autistic community. It's beginning. <sighs> Yeah, and I agree, you know, we do need to learn from people who are living and breathing autism. We need to learn and listen from first-hand experiences and this is how we learn. Um, you know, learning from the textbooks, We, I mean, our total understanding and concept of autism, everything has changed in terms of diagnos diagnostic criteria. Um, so our understanding is just continuing to develop. And I think we can get so much value from listening to people who are on the spectrum and can share from their point of view. Because like we said earlier, everyone has a different experience of it. Um, yeah. And we need to, to value that everyone sees the world through this different lens. So I think that is one of the most valuable things that we can do to support. And our, our most vulnerable of autistics need to be given that platform too. So I'm talking about trans autistics and black autistics and autistics of learning disabilities and autistics with nonverbal speech because speech, this is a, yes, it is fantastic. We get to say what we want. It's also problematic. And there are other ways to communicate and it is ableist of us to be like, you can't speak or you can't speak. Are we in 2019 or not? I'm sorry, there is sign language, there are communication devices, there is the written language. It is up to us to change for that person. And it is unfair, it is unfair to make someone with a, a coordination difficulty, with an actual motor coordination difficulty, it's unfair to expect them to one day learn to speak when they physically cannot. Because that's going to make them feel like they're inept when they're not. They're just completely self-different to begin with. So I want to know, I, I'm going to learn sign language this year. I can't wait. I'm going to learn sign language. I want to really look at the, the different communication devices that are out there, the ACC devices, because I want to interview some of our most vulnerable autistics who people think don't have a voice. You know Carly Fleischman? No. Carly Fleischman is an American autistic. She's one of the most famous non-verbal autistics with learning difficulties too. And she is an advocate. Carly Fleischman, go and look at her. She will defy your expectations. 
of what autism looks like. I know a lot of people will be listening to me thinking, well, she's not as severe as my son. Go and check out Carly and come back to me. We are people. We are worthy of love. We are worthy of friendship as well. And Carly, oh, I hope I meet her one day. Hey, Carly, I'm coming to meet you one day. Let me need to do an interview. I can't wait. You can do like a little stim dance together. We don't need to communicate with words. We can literally just be each other's company and communicate with visualization and still get so bloody much from one another because autistics are not afraid to communicate in ways that other people think it's just weird and freaking. We're creative and we are creative even in our communication. I think, yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah, because I express myself through dance. Like, ooh, ooh. That's what I do when I'm with other autists and they don't think I'm weird. Uh, Sarah, honestly, it has been just mind-blowing listening to you. You have such a, a great insight into everything, clearly, um, and it's just been wonderful I to play it I don't feel like you. Uh, absolutely. Uh, you, you speak about it so rawly and honestly, and it is, it's really such a great perspective to um, share with our community, I think, and I am... I'm all about getting lots of different perspectives because I really think it's parents need to see the same complex issue from different perspectives because we all have something to learn from each other in this community, I think. So um, it's been Can such I a... Say that? Can yes. I say that? Wait. I used to think autism was something that was a condition. I used to think it was something that would basically mean my son would never be able to have a full independent life and I used to think all these things um I don't want people listening to this thinking oh god I've got to go it wrong I feel bad and they'll feel bad if they're autistic yeah they'll feel bad because they got it wrong no 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 see this as a fork in the road see this as an opportunity now for you to begin your journey and learn and grow and that that actually makes me happy it's like filling up my whole chest with happiness Emotions are very physical for autistics. So my whole chest with happiness to know that you're willing to consider it. Don't you dare beat yourself up because you have only been going off the model that other people are forcing down your neck and it's not useful to punish ourselves. In fact, it's useful to celebrate that you've now realised it can be so much more. So don't punish yourself, please. Before we... Uh, wrap it all up. I do have five rapid fire questions that I would like to ask you. Yeah. So number one is what is one habit that parents can implement today? One habit that parents can implement today is self-care. You need to be able to care for yourself first before you can advocate for your kid. And especially if you're undiagnosed autistic. You need to look at your own sensory quotas because when your kid's having a meltdown, the reason it may be so distressing to you is because of the noise. It could be hurting you, yeah? So it's about looking at your own self-care, making sure you're not getting too overwhelmed as well. That's one habit I would get parents to implement because it's not selfish to have to move away. But one habit I would really implement with them is being more open and honest with their kid about what autism is, about how wonderful it is. Make it a habit to tell them how wonderful it is every day, how wonderful they are every day. 
people also don't sugarcoat it. We don't live in fairyland. We're not in Disney World. That's why so many people have mental health difficulties today, because Disney all sold us a lie in the 90s, and we all grew up like, oh, shit, it's not like Disney. It's not like Disney at all. Uh, yeah, so be honest about reality can be hard. It's okay to feel sad. It's okay. We all can shout at each other even, but as long as we say sorry, those are habits, I think, that go a long way. And be aware that you may have to communicate differently, not always verbally. So be expressive of your body language. Maybe even draw and write how you feel. Get into your kids' world instead of trying to get them constantly into yours. Make that a good habit. Fantastic. Number two, what do people never ask you that you wish they did? Wow, that's an amazing question. I've never been asked that before. <laughs> what do people never ask me which I wish they did? Liam, can you think of maybe what people, what do people never ask me which you think maybe they should? Liam, what do you think people should ask me which they never do and you think they should? Um, people never ask me if I want to give everything all up, <laughs> um, which I do often because that's my fight flight. I want to give this up. I don't want to do this anymore. I can't do agony Oi. I can't be agony Oi. This is too much. I can't do it. They're going to hate me when they find out I'm just autistic and they've only been looking at the nice parts. People ah. um, don't really ask me like what this is like and for me, as a blogger, I, I started Agony Orties just a blogger, and it just developed into this huge thing where I'm now a public figure. And as an autistic person, kind of going first, we are the first advocates. The advocates have been popping up over the last 10 years. We are the first to have to be visible, openly autistic and visible, and that's daunting. Um, but I wouldn't change it for the world. I just wish there were more of us. So start your own YouTube, start your own blogs. We need autistics. It can't just be me. It can't. We need a community and a culture, um, not a one-man band. Um, and they are popular everywhere, but resources are scarce still. Um, so I think people don't ask me just how hard it can be to, to do Agony Orty and be Agony Orty and be open and share what I do. I do it because what is the point of hiding it? This information it needs to be taught. It's not being taught. I don't understand why it's not being taught. And I think it actually is a sign of the times of how much this community is on their knees if they're coming to me for advice. Yeah? It, it, it makes me sad, actually, that it, it's had to take someone like me to help people because I don't really consider myself a great help. Ah. Uh. I have to say, if anyone who is listening to this has not been onto Sarah's YouTube account or checked out the Facebook lives, absolutely go on. It, she is so um, charismatic, absolutely uh, really authentic too. You know, you just tell it how it is and that is what I love about yeah. it. And I am sitting to you right now. You're in your dressing gown, dressing gown, dressing gown, gown and you know, and we do see you dressed up as well, you know, so we see these both sides of you, all sides of you. you <laughs> you're make No, I love that. And I think that's really valuable. So thank you for being you and sharing with us you. Thank you. That's so lovely. I've got three more questions. Thank you, my love. So number three is what book would you recommend all parents read? Neurotypes. 
Neurotype Steve Silverman. Neurotype Steve Silverman. It is an exhaustive uh, history of autism. It tells you where we've gone from where we used to think it was, and you'll recognise that's where maybe your comfort is, and where it really is. It shows the research, the science, the fact. It's it's our best, one of our best resources at the moment. Um, but um, another book I would recommend is actually by an English, uh, an English doctor at Sheffield Hallam University. Dr. Luke Bearden, and it's called Autism and Asperger's, and I think it's called In Adults, and I would really recommend it because it's written from a neurodiverse perspective, and if you want to read stuff that's literally talking from the heart, go read that book. Um, I call Steve Silverman Papa Steve. I'm actually meeting him next month in San Francisco. I cannot wait because he's like my idol. Um, because he's Papa Steve because of what he's done to the, for the community. He's like, our oh, Papa. So he's like, he's like, are you taking the piss when you say that? I'm like, no, Papa Steve. You're literally our Papa Steve. It's a term of endearment. I love you. And you did yeah. do an interview with him, didn't you? And that's uploaded on your Facebook? Yeah. It is. And we're releasing another version next week with subtitles because we've not managed to get one subtitles. So the new, brand new version will be up um, next week. So go check that out. Excellent. But by the time this is out, it'll be out. Yeah. <laughs> Number four, what is your top unfinished bucket list item? To become the doctor from Doctor Who. Like, I'm not even lying. I want to be the doctor in Doctor Who. Doctor Who is a sci fi show, um, it's a British sci fi show. I'm not too sure wearing a Doctor Who hat. And um, I have the TARDIS tattooed on my arm. It's about time travel. And I want to be the doctor. The doctor goes traveling time and saving people and helping people and using her mind to do it. Um, so that's what I want to be and it's, I know it's ridiculous but hey it just shows you where my head's at <laughs> but I think the main unfinished bucket list is um, creating real communities for autistic people and it's unfinished because I've only just started so a bit unreasonable for me yeah <laughs> and that's where the real work's at isn't it yeah and I'd love to meet Sir Anthony Hopkins he's openly autistic do you know that? So Anthony Hopkins, you know, who played Hannibal, he's autistic. Wow. No, I didn't know. Came out two years ago. He was diagnosed, diagnosed, sorry, 12 years ago, and he kept it a secret because he was worried about people, how people would see him. Mm. When he came out, I was so happy because I was like, yes, this is the positive role models that we need. Mm. He's like, false dad, false dad. You can't say Hannibal kids like Hannibal, bloody hell. False <laughs> dad is autistic. Paul's dad in the Marvel movie. Um, again, um, Daryl Hannah is openly autistic as well. I want to meet more open autistic um, entrepreneurs, celebrities, to kind of say to them, hey, there's a community here that's suffering and we want you to be our role models and, and to help us with this, with this cause because they're there and I know that. If they know that we're here too, they jump at the opportunity. It's just getting to them, right? Mm. So that's this. So Anthony Hopkins. I'm coming to you. I am I'm coming to Sam Hopkins. Liam, we need to see him. Yeah. It's on the list. <laughs> one day. Awesome. And lucky last, number five, if you could only offer one piece of advice to parents, what would it be? Your kid is your kid. Whether they're autistic, whether they have a learning difficulty, whether they can speak, whether they're still in nappies at the eight whether they have food aversions, whether they're crying because they need to go out to the shops, whether they're crying because they need to go into the bus, whether they're crying because they need to put on clothes. Your kid 
is your kid. And your kid is a very vulnerable one. They're very sensitive. They're very anxious. And if any of this is at all sounding familiar, then you know what that's like too as a parent because you're probably an autistic neurodiverse too. Never ever give up on them. Don't let people tell you that what you're doing isn't good enough, that you're not disciplining them, that you're spoiling them because they are wanting you to work from a non-autistic, archaic, post-Victorian, post-war era way of bringing up children. And we are past that. We're past that. The reason we're past it is because we have a mental health crisis now within our children population in the UK. We've never had so many depressed and anxious kids in infant school. Um, so something has to change. And just know that change, even though it can be scary, it can be liberating. And when you realize that you are that force of change yourself, it was going to open up so many possible avenues and relationships for your, you and your kid. It will strengthen it. Just watch it. And also, please remember it takes time. I don't like that. That's why I want a time machine. I want to be able to hop in the future and see how it worked out. But it takes years. Just keep at it and the benefits. The benefits of genuinely approaching life autistically, they will show. Not the benefits of discipline and subordination and compliance. It's a relationship. Build a relationship with your kid and they will forever be grateful for having you as a parent in their life. That's my main biggest advice. Thank you, Agony Orti, for your absolute tireless work in the autism community, for being unapologetically you. Uh, you are such a role model and a gem. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us on the Home Based Hope podcast. Thank you so much. I've absolutely loved it and I can't wait to share it with my, with my little followers and, and, and group. So, yeah, I can't wait. Thank and you. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. The best way to get in contact with you is through your Facebook channel, Agony Orti, and Absolutely. your YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. Facebook and YouTube and Instagram. I'm on Instagram a lot. I do lots of live Q&As on there. Talk about relationships and well-being as well and overcoming trauma on Instagram quite a bit. Instagram is the more adult kind of side. So, yeah, yeah, hop on over, interact with me, and I'll do my best. Isn't Sarah just incredible? I absolutely love her. Now, once I stopped recording, Sarah actually kept on talking and we kept on talking for a little bit longer. So I went back in, hit the record button so I could share with you what she had to say. So listen in. I have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, which is hypermobility of the joints. It's a collagen disorder. I mean, it makes me very flexible in my skin, in my um in my ligaments, even in the, the arteries and the, my valve in my heart has to be monitored. Um, so you'll see autistics are very floppy wrists. The hypermobility is very, very prevalent. We don't know why. We don't know why. But I think we've got hyperlastic brains. It makes sense to why we sense differently. My husband has uh, distal myopathy, and it is known that autistic people do have quite some serious co-concurrent conditions. It's possible for us to have none, which means that that will impact our ability to function differently, yeah, to someone who does have a disability. So my, my husband has muscle wasted and I have um, a joint problem. Some autistics have neurological problems such as um, epilepsy, um, tics as well. And 
this is what I mean by you have to treat the autistic individually and you have to rule out, you have to rule out that they're not in pain or they're not in distress first before just seeing it as oh they're being disruptive for the hell of it. And that is why you will see as well more challenging behaviours the more complex a case is, the more, the more complex needs a person has, the more the person has to deal with. So that person's life is ultimately harder. That's the way I would see it. So if your life is feeling difficult, if your life is feeling hard, it's because ultimately it, it is. It is. And it's not useful to, to work from other people's approaches. You need to look at individualised care and look at, like what you said, what works for your child and what works for you as a family and, and, and making your, picking your own battles, really. And it's difficult when you've got all your neighbours going, you need to control this, you need to, you're not doing that right. got to let all the other people's opinions kind of fall by the wayside. You go to the community, you know what they're talking about, for practical advice. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in today. I really hope that parts of the episode resonated with you, but more importantly, I hope that you feel inspired to take action from home base. If there is someone who you know who would benefit from this podcast, please share it with them. Now, I love connecting with you all, so if you head on over to Facebook and Instagram, you can find me there. All you have to do is search Home Base Hope. Now, if you subscribe to this podcast by heading to iTunes and hitting the subscribe button, every fortnight you will get an instant notification of the latest interview. And if you do love the show, then please leave a five-star review because this will help more people discover us and it will help us inspire more positive change in people living on the spectrum. So until next time, I encourage you to open your mind, respect the differences, and above all, believe that you can make a difference from home base. See you soon, guys. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.